And now the creator of Ren and Stimpy, Bob Kemp. Rolls downstairs, alone in Paris, rolls over your neighbor's dog. It's great for a snack, it fits on your back. It's log, log, log. It's log, it's log, it's big, it's heavy, it's wood. It's log, it's log, it's better than bad, it's good. Everyone wants a log, everyone loves a log. Diddle-diddle-diddle-diddle from Blamo. There we go, that's the log song. And you're listening to Sci Fi Saturday Night. We will begin in mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you get me so easily! It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Never, ever, ever expect somebody to go out for a beer run two minutes before the podcast is supposed to start. We apologize for being late if you're listening to us live. If you're listening to us on iTunes or on the website, ha-ha, we're on time. Not a problem. Welcome to TalkCast 234, another systematic invasion of your heart, mind, and soul about all things science fiction. Deep in Area 51 on sub-level 151 from the gluten-free Puppy Pasta Palace, making intergalactic pet treats since 2000. 2021. I'm the man without a name, known only as the Dome. Joining the talk cast tonight, the usual suspects in the Revere Time Vortex are violent soundboard vixen, Countess of Shiny Stuff Bites, Princess of Opinions, our own girl genius, Kriana. Don't worry, you stream users. The music <laughs> was supposed to stop. It's all good. It's all good. From the stacks of her personal quiet place in the dank dungeon, only indoor zen and vegetable garden, which doubles as a robot reading room, not wearing a cone of shame, it's just a fashion statement for the Sombrarian. I mean, I got back from the beer run on time. I just forgot to unmute myself until 15, 20 minutes late. It's okay. It's not a and I hope you brought something good for all of it. Oh, From I did. Four- Excellent. From the Four Color Vault of Comics in Manchester, New Hampshire, our Ginger Anjanu. Everybody makes fun of her faux British accent because she really hasn't got one. We love her anyway. So tonight she'll be using her German accent. It's the dead redhead. Really, I was going to send a shout out to Richmond from the IT crowd, but now you've ruined it, don't so. <laughs> Sometimes this light goes on. <laughs> and now wait for it. Did you see that? There it is. Exciting. <laughs> Tonight, we would normally talk about news, but we're going to talk about some other stuff instead because we have. A, a room full of guests in, in the virtual studio here tonight. From MysteryAircraft.com, Derek Belanger and Chuck Davis will be joining us for the first half an hour or so. And in the second half hour, uh, Houston Huddleston from the Hollywood Science Fiction Museum. Uh, both very different, yet both very different. Wow. Um, yes, they are dumb. Houston, we have, we have a, problem. a problem. And there we go. It's been. Started. I had to say it's it once. Started. So Wait, we, we got a problem. What? What? Yes, dome can't pronounce your name. Houston, or you could do it in German. Churston Hatterstrom. I've got it. I've got it, but my I actually, uh, your favorite Star Trek char- Next Generation character was on the Six Million Dollar Man last night, you know. The man whose name you love to say. The man whose name I can never pronounce properly. That's right. <laughs> he was on the Six Million Dollar Man last night. Benedict Cumberbatch? <laughs> no, who was that? Benedict Cumberbatch. John Delancey, yes. <laughs> oh, he went- he was in diapers when Next Generation was on. How's that? On the Lancy? No, Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> okay, there, there are some very disturbing visuals happening. <laughs> Con! 
Ben. Okay, I'm going to be in therapy for another 30 years. <laughs> being on the show isn't enough. True. So anyhow, uh, normally at this point, we'd be talking about the news. But we don't have any news this week. So. I know, I just wanted to play the song. <laughs> my news is I got my Craigie Who shirt. You did, you did. And For a minute, I thought you were saying you had your cranky hooch, and I was going to say. <laughs> no, 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 no. Wow. I'm going to go get that in a minute. Wow. <laughs> Oh, there hasn't been enough alcohol for this one yet. It's definitely one of those nights. Okay. (laughs) So in our first half hour, I want to welcome Derek Belanger and Chuck Davis from mysteryaircraft.com. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, You were supposed to be on a couple weeks ago. We screwed that one up because we're really good at that. Yeah, we've been sitting here ever since. (laughs) Sorry. It's a really lonely life, and I get it. All good. So talk to (laughs) us about mysteryaircraft.com and what it is. Well, I'll let Derek go ahead because he's our uh, mouthpiece here. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. Oh, good Lord. (laughs) Eric the Metatron, sorry. There you go. All right. So Mystery Aircraft, um, we started it uh, a few months ago. Basically, the whole reason behind it is I had read Chuck's book uh, about um, flight called Phantoms of the Skies. And as I was reading it, uh, yeah, it is a good plug. Uh, As I was reading it, it made me think about, well, there's all these questions about these very interesting, unique aircrafts that were created uh, before the Wright Brothers. And it made me start to think, well, what, what exactly are some of these things people are still seeing today? Could they actually be people uh, creating experimental aircrafts? And so when we thought about it, we're like, okay, what exactly is a mystery aircraft? Um, we were thinking, well, if anything someone sees in the sky could be a ball of light, could be uh, some kind of airplane, could be a Zeppelin-type object. It just kind of steps back and says, what is that? And there really isn't a good answer for it. And for me personally, it was the questions. I always think questions are more important than answers that really led me to uh, the site. Now, that was my piece of it. Chuck is definitely more the technical expert uh, because he's got background in aviation history. Um, So sometimes when I say, what is that, he's very, very quick to tell me what exactly it is I'm looking at. Yeah. Now, now Chuck, when we say mystery aircraft, we're not necessarily talking about uh, extraterrestrial vehicles. Exactly. In uh, fact, about 90% of the time, it's anything but. Oh, yeah. Uh, see, a lot of people misunderstand UFO means unidentified flying object. When it is identified, it's an IFO or identified flying object. Uh, if you look at the regular definition, UFO does not say anything about extraterrestrial spacecraft. That's that's a cultural icon that's put on that. And uh, at mysteryaircraft.com, we believe that there's more of a historical precedent for terrestrial designs uh, than there are for extraterrestrial. Not that we discount, you know, extraterrestrial life at all. You know, we're kind of open-minded about that. So I was going to say, Chuck, you're the opposite of the... The guy with the crazy hair on the History Channel. Oh God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah, yeah. The issue, the issue that ensues is uh, there are there are the people who are rationally trying to look at this and going, yeah, this, this is stuff that we know about because we're building it. There is the 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 government that for all intents and purposes, has muddied the water horribly, however yeah. it possibly can, uh, for what possible reason, who knows. And then there is, you know, the guy in Arkansas standing in the cornfield going, what the hell's that? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and we and we uh, we kind of uh, talk about that there is more than just the government uh, behind experimental aircraft. Uh, the conspiracy theorists that talk about what's called a federal hypothesis, in other words, you know, everything up there is being built by the government and it's being, going to be used against us. Uh, they're ignoring, well, number one, I think they're wearing tinfoil hats, uh, <laughs> but they're ignoring the entire industry. There's three segments to the industry. There's military, commercial, and private. And if you do go on Google and just type in home-built flying saucer, you're going to find a lot of hits on people who have built flying saucers or flying wings or some crazy thing in their garage, and they're test flying them. Is that like um, the news story a few, probably more than a few years ago, where the little boy ended up in his father's weather yeah, that balloon? Actually- Something that like that. That actually happened out here. Yeah, that was in Colorado. It, yeah. yeah, yeah. When they said, "Oh, my my son's on top of that balloon," and it ended up being a big hoax. Oh, uh, I yes. think that's what you're talking about. And right. Um, and that's actually, you know, pretty common because uh, you know there's those who are building these devices and um, using them for commercial gain. There's those. Uh, doing it because they are, you know, it's human ingenuity and they just want to better themselves. And then you've got the hoaxers. There definitely are people out there who are purposely trying to um, pull it over on other people um, and have a good time doing it. Um, and sometimes that can be, you know, funny and sometimes it can be extremely detrimental to them and, and to uh, witnesses. So in the in the website, you have a historical component. Uh, you go back to uh, uh, cave drawings and and Egyptian drawings. You have some uh, some of Da Vinci's work in there, and then you talk about uh, uh, the Kenneth Arnold sighting, which mm, is yes. frankly the sighting that started the American UFO fascination. That's right. right. So there's a contention on your website that Kenneth Arnold didn't see UFOs but actually saw experimental aircraft. That's that's one theory that we uh, speculate on. Correct. It's very possible that he actually saw just maybe some P-51s or maybe some P-80s. That was an early jet fighter in the 40s uh, that he just wasn't familiar with uh, seeing in that area under those lighting conditions. There there is, of course, also the possibility that Arnold didn't really see what he thought he saw. Um, There was another uh, aircraft in the sky or near him that, that claimed they didn't see anything that day. Uh, as well. And we definitely talk about all the possibilities on the website. Um, There is a good chance that, um, you know, Arnold made a mistake. That's a definite possibility. Um, Could he have seen something? It's possible we throw out, um, I think, about five different uh, takes on what he could have seen if he saw an experimental aircraft. Um, And it's up to the reader kind of to make their own decisions on what could he have seen. Because we're honestly, at this point in time, never going to get the answer, most likely. And the interesting thing is that instead of uh, pointing the reader into a single direction, what you've done with this particular case, and I assume it's kind of the blueprint for what you're going to do as you continue to build the website, is you offer actual suspects for it, showing uh, the reader at the website actual pictures of what it could have been from the time that uh, the incident took place. Right. That's that's where I come in because I'm the historical geek. Derek's, Derek's the looks and I'm the uh, historical <laughs> We don't have pictures of you, so I have no idea. But well, I've been told I have the face for radio. <laughs> but at least you guys, it sounds like you're giving people, you're not saying it is this or it's definitely not this. You're saying here's some 
possibilities, we can't really answer this question, but you might want to make up your own mind for it. Right, and that's where the whole that's that's where my whole point with the question comes in. I mean, we're we're giving you some possible answers, but we're not saying uh, at any point this is one hundred percent what definitely happened. Um, but getting back to uh, what Dome was saying was, is this the format our articles are going to take? Um, for the most part, yes, because the um, the Terrasaur article that I posted, I think that was maybe the last one we posted up. Same kind of deal. What are people seeing? Here's some possibilities um, with some photos of the different um, possible uh, aircrafts uh, or even kites in that particular instance that people might be seeing um, and misidentifying. Um, but we're also uh, occasionally are looking at some of the historical pieces as well. And like um, the Saqqara bird, for example, uh, Egyptian model. Uh, they tried to test it out, could have flown, makes you wonder, okay, could the Egyptians have had some kind of basic glider-type aircraft? Um, my opinion, it, it was possible. Yeah, it's, it's very possible. They did have uh, the, tech, the, the materials to possibly create very simple hang gliders or hang glider-type vehicles. Well, if they did or not, uh, well, that question will never be answered, and I don't think we can uh, necessarily rely on uh, the guy with the crazy hair on the History Channel. <laughs> uh, I love that guy, though. I mean, I, I love that guy. And I'm the still trying to figure out where he gets his hair done. The crazier his theory, the higher his hair gets. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I think it's an electromagnetic kind of deal, happened, yeah, yeah. which is why he needs the tinfoil hat. Do you guys ever get any uh, resistance from people who say like, hey, I've seen every episode of the X-Files and I know that there's got to be aliens stealing my luggage and what are you trying to prove here? <laughs> Um, you know, not only have I not gotten resistance, just uh, a week ago, I actually got uh, a really good question. This guy found us, uh, went to our Facebook page, went to Mystery Aircraft on Facebook, um, and he just he asked me about a particular device. He's like, hey, you know, I'm wondering, I've been hearing about this device called the X-151 Torter, and this guy's his name was Joseph Jones, and he's like, do you have any information on it? I've heard that, you know, it, it was an experimental aircraft, but I, I'm coming up empty. And so I thought that was pretty cool. And he came to us and um, did a little research on it. Um, we now think, talking to Chuck, it sounds like the device is probably a hoax. Yeah. Um, that there probably was. Um, you can. You want to explain why? Yeah. Uh, the one thing that makes me think it was a hoax to begin with is the X-51. Uh, if it was a... Uh, Actually, 151. 151, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if it was uh, one of the, the NASA's or the government's uh, X-series aircraft, that series has only gone up to, I believe, the X-57. So X-151 is way off the mark. It, it sounds made up. Torador, uh, like I just told uh, Derek about half an hour ago, it sounds to me like somebody's trying to spell Toreador. Right. So and it's it's possibly a major hoax. So well, one of the things that you talk about on the website that <clears throat> you're actually positing is is real and actual is Project Silverbug. Yes, those those documents have been declassified, and it, it was a real aircraft. Never flew. That's that's one thing to. That you have to emphasize, it never flew. It never got uh, was never built in a flyable prototype form, and it's definitely different from the Avro car, which uh, now, everybody who's can you, you tell know, us what this is, guys? We don't know what. Yeah, what Chuck, can, we, can we talk a little bit about what Project Silverbug was? What its sure. intent it was? Back in the 1950s, uh, Canada was looking for a way to defend against incoming Soviet bombers. you got to remember this is part of the Cold War. And they were looking for something that would be supersonic and have vertical takeoff capability. 
which was a really big thing back in the uh, 50s, you know, because uh, one nuclear missile, one nuclear bomb could wipe out a runway and then therefore destroy your your uh, retaliatory capabilities. So they wanted something that would operate from cornfields and, and uh, semi-prepared airstrips, take off vertically, fly at supersonic speeds, and intercept uh, the Soviet bombers. They came up with this design uh, because a disk shape is actually a very efficient aeroform at first high supersonic speeds. It's notoriously unstable though. So, it, uh, and they got to the point where they uh, built uh, test models, they ran uh, uh, engine tests. One of these things I think had eight turbojet engines. So you can imagine what the plumbing would look like in the damn thing and the maintenance of it. And uh, they tried and they tried. Now, yeah, according really worked. According to the paperwork that, that you have posted on the website about this system, it had a propulsion system known as the radial flow gas turbine, right, which allowed it to vertically take off and land, as well as maintain a supersonic performance. Right. Yeah, yeah, but, that was that. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, that was one of the. Uh, one of the uh, ideas back in the 50s, they thought that that would be the best way to achieve vertical flight. Uh, and it just increased engineering problems, temperatures, and weight. Uh, basically, what it was was in the center. What? what that? No, go on. Oh, okay. What it was is that in the center of the uh, disc was a large impeller impeller fan, and it was powered by the exhaust of some jet engines stationed radially around it, and it would uh, just concentrate the, the down thrust through the center, center line of the machine. Actually, they, I don't even think they worked out what the landing gear would have looked like. No, I mean, in, in, in the, webs, uh, the web information that you have there... It shows prototype after prototype and never a working model of any of this. Right. Uh, there, there are a few photographs. I mean, those documents that I got off the, the Internet, and there's, there's some photographs of, uh, say, a section of the, of the engines that they were testing up in uh, Walton, Ontario. And uh, but no full size aircraft has was ever built, as far as we know. Tuck, I have a quick one for you. There was a, a flap for a while on some of the UFO sites about this new thing that was coming down. They were especially were seeing it in California. They had video of it. They had pictures, and this was before people really started talking about drones. I'm sure. Drones had been along around for some time before that, but it was before oh, yeah, the so average layperson had seen a picture of a drone. And then suddenly, as we started to hear about drones, they looked an awful lot like those pictures of those things in California. And I've noticed nobody's talking about them anymore. Is that pretty much what we were looking at? Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and even just, I believe it was. Last week, uh, there was a sighting of a mystery aircraft in Texas. Uh, it was, a lot of people are thinking uh, aviation. We took a look at it, and they think it might be a new stealth transport. So a lot of times, you know, you see these things are out. They're still classified. People make the, what is this? And then it does get solved when it gets declassified, and we see what uh, people were seeing in the sky. A case in point is the uh, Lockheed F-117 uh, stealth fighter. Uh, back back in the 1980s, uh, I used to get the magazine Aviation Week in Space Technology every week. And back in the 1980s, there were a series of articles in this highly prestigious trade journal talking about these strange triangular aircraft seen around uh, Tonopah, Nevada, 
so-called Area 51. And sure enough, uh, what, in the late 1980s, the Air Force announced, yes, we were experimenting with the F-117 night fighter, and uh, we had to declassify it. So the pilot, this is what the Air Force actually said. They had to declassify it so that the pilots would learn how to fly the thing during the daylight. And here were these articles in this prestigious magazine that if you read them and you didn't know what you were reading about, sounded exactly like UFO reports. So the reality is, is that on a monthly basis, the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON as it's known, gets in the United States 70 to 90 reports monthly of right. UFOs. Uh, if you mm-hmm. go to MUFON's website, you can actually see them and the shaky pictures and even shakier video mm-hmm. of God knows what it is. Last night photos. And of those, 90 to 95% are explainable to one degree or another. I would, I would so, say higher than that. Probably 98 really? to 99%. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, there, and there's, there's a possibility that if some of these reports had more information attached to them, that the identification would have taken even less time. And that's kind of a, a large portion of the issue as well. Right. In that when people think they're seeing something, a lot of times that's not what they're seeing. Right. So well, let me, let me how give does, you an example. Does, sure. Oh, yeah, let me give you an example. Uh, we're not too far from the Denver International Airport. And in a magazine called Open Minds, which I'd recommend, uh, there was a letter from some people, uh, two gentlemen from Commerce City, which is a, a town near Denver International Airport, who said that every evening at 5 o'clock they go outside for a smoke and they look to the east and they see all these strange lights in the sky and they're behaving strangely. What are they? These guys never knew that Denver International Airport was to their east, and at 5 o'clock, the planes are taking off and landing to the west. So these, they're seeing, they were seeing the landing lights of commercial airliners, and they thought these things were UFOs. Now, in the 60s, the same uh, general area in Denver was inundated by uh, UFO sightings during the time that the Lockheed Martin test range, which at that time was the Martin Marietta test range, was was firing off uh, test boosters uh, to for yeah. the uh, Gemini project and the Mercury project. So that people don't recognize what's in the sky doesn't mean it's not identifiable. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. See, what, what we're trying to do is basically... I guess, teach people that to see a mystery object in the sky and go, I don't know what it is, therefore it must be an extraterrestrial spacecraft, is an irrational leap. Uh, you know, it's the same with the, with the guy with the hair on, you know, saying, I don't know how they made the pyramid, so it must have been E.T. Uh, there, there's a progression that, that uh, a rational person should take before they assume that, you know, it's a it's a flying saucer from Mars or Zeta Reticuli, whichever you prefer. I prefer Mars. It's closer and easier to pronounce. So what's going on? And, and there's better parking. There you go. There's better parking and they have a Starbucks. Uh, cool. Well, I know, I know that uh, Illustrator X will be heading for Mars if, in fact, there is a Starbucks there. That's yes. true. This so, is what's happening? I'm not going to say Dunkin' Donuts. 
<laughs> so what's happening on your website in the next what's what's coming up on the website? Yeah, what's coming up there? <laughs> Couple of things. Uh we're going to add a book review uh spot on the site. Uh we are going to try to get back into uh updating more articles. Uh we been delayed because we have a book that uh, is coming out, a two-volume anthology uh, coming out in September and November um, about, it's, it's called A Study in Terror. It's about, um, it's, Sir, it's um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's um, fantasy, horror, and uh, supernatural writings, and we did an anthology, and we added some essays and put it together. So that's been taking a much larger chunk of our time which we haven't been able to devote towards the website. But we're planning on getting back into that, um, adding a book review column, um, adding keep, keep adding up, which we have been doing fairly regularly, news articles that are just in the regular news on mystery aircraft. Um, but definitely looking at other um, sightings throughout history and just saying, you know, what, you know, what exactly were uh, people seeing or you know, what could they possibly have been seeing. Hey, Derek, can we take just a minute and uh, plug the new book you've got coming out? Of course. <laughs> what would well, you like to know, man? <laughs> you know what's going to sell me? And how many copies you want? The, the name uh, of the book is called The Forgotten Doyle? No, no, actually, the, the, uh, it's called The Study in Terror, uh, yes. the revolutionary uh, um, horror and... Um, I'm sorry. Let me step back again. <laughs> it's called A Study in Terror, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Revolutionary uh, Stories of Fear and the Supernatural. Uh, the first volume comes out at the end of September. Um, the second volume comes out at the end of November. Um, basically, the whole point of the anthology is that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is known as the creator of Sherlock Holmes, uh, but he's also done... Um, and the other stories and other genres, which people may not know, were equally as influential in uh, those appropriate genres. Um, you know, he was a big influence on Lovecraft. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, the whole Mary Celeste legend came because one of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories, which was written as fiction, was published as fact. Um, he basically wrote stories that the entire concept of the mommy as a monster were, were taken from, and he got no credit for those. Um, so basically, the point of the uh, anthology is to put Doyle back on the correct pedestal he deserves uh, and to show everyone, look, he wasn't just known for Sherlock Holmes. He did all these other amazing works and should get the credit for them. The website is called Mystery Aircraft, Derek Belanger and Charles Davis. Guys, thanks so much. Oh, Thank you. Welcome. It was great. And also check. Out hopefully, when new stuff oh, comes yeah. out, <laughs> and hopefully, when new stuff comes out on the website, you'll let us know so we can promo it. Thanks a lot, guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. Th thank you. Thank you. All righty. At this point, we would normally have our uh, our. Uh, what will we do at the halftime? Oh, yes, the poll that we haven't had for the last month. We used to have polls. <laughs> we used to have polls. We used to have Facebook polls. and then that's before, that's before Putin took over. But anyway, that's a whole oh, other story. We're going to bring this on Putin? Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, somebody, somebody will do it in, in a German accent and we'll be all set. So since we don't have a poll this week, uh, Dead Redhead wanted to talk very quickly about some changes that are going on in Kickstarter because we talk a lot about Kickstarters and uh, our next guest has a Kickstarter that he's going to talk about. So, Dead Redhead? Oh, okay. I, uh, I borrowed this actually from the Beats website, but they're talking about major overhaul of some of the rules, including, um, actually, there's going to be fewer rules, and some of the previously banned pro uh, projects will not be banned at this point. You still can't have charities up, but there are apparently only three guidelines at this point. Um, projects must create something to share with others. Projects must be honest and clearly presented, 
and projects cannot fundraise for charity, offer financial incentives, or involve prohibited items. And what do they mean by it. prohibited items? Uh, that's, there's, that's their whole thing. Well, I believe that at this point you can't do alcohol on uh, Kickstarter. There are, um, I'm, I'm guessing you can't, you know, prostitute anything or anybody through Kickstarter. <laughs> I'm sure if there are How federal laws against it, it's... <laughs> Well, yes, what you can't do. So um, I guess if there's a federal law against it, you can't put it on Kickstarter, though. <laughs> Damn. Well, okay, my I mean, Kickstarter project is out then. You can't call it a brothel. That's all. Okay, we'll have to find another name for it then. Not a problem. <laughs> so, Kriana, did we have the blog music? I guess we don't. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> At this point, I'd like to bring in our second guest, who is the CEO of the Hollywood Sci-Fi Museum. Houston Huddleston. Houston, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Well, we've got a weird, weird... Uh, delay going on right now. Yes, we do. Very much so. So, well, you, you know, uh, tomorrow you can hear my, the second part of my answers. Oh, perfect. <laughs> there we so, go. where did the idea come from for you to put the Hollywood Sci-Fi Museum together? Well, uh, I found the Bridge of the Enterprise from Star Trek The Next Generation, the Intra-B Bridge, is what it's called, and also the original series bridge. And they were used for touring. And in the late 90s, I think they were made. And then they sat outside for five years, and I found them uh, just before they were about to be thrown out through total quirk, happenstance. Someone I knew worked with Paramount and told me about this. And I rescued these two bridges, bridge sets, and I, I did a Kickstarter back in 2012 to get it, uh, uh, try to get the money to restore it. I raised about 68000 which was still only part of the money I needed to restore them. But I thought, okay, that'll start us on our path at least. And then uh, I, uh, I mean, my ignorance was admittedly uh, because I didn't know anything about doing any of this stuff. Uh, I'm a writer, for God's sake. I, I wrote for TV and, and film. I didn't... Uh, I produced, but it wasn't producing a museum. Or, you know. So I... Um, uh, one thing led to another, and I realized that the big companies didn't care about two bridge sets from Star Trek because they had no way to make money from it. You know, To them, it was just, okay, great, now what? And so me and the uh, our board of directors, who includes Ronald E. Moore, who produced and wrote Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica, and Rick Sternbach, who designed the Tricorder, and uh, Doug uh, Drexler, and uh, David Gerald, who created the Tribbles, and all these famous cats. Uh, you know, I said, okay, what can we do with these? Let's, there is no sci-fi museum that is exclusively a science fiction museum anywhere in the world. And there's nothing in Los Angeles like this, so let's create our own. And they were in agreement, and we laid out the plans, and uh, that's exactly what we're doing. And it just it's excited a lot of people who can benefit from this, even if it's just in, uh, like, uh, Billy Piper from uh, Doctor Who and uh, uh, Carl Urban from Star Trek, who played Bones, and he also played Judge Dredd and all this. Both of them said, oh, my God, I can't wait to bring my kid to this. And, you know, for these nice. people, it's like, this is my legacy. That, that's awesome. So, you've got the bridge set. Can I, Do you I have a physical? Sure, go ahead. Houston, you, I have to go back to the beginning of your story, unfortunately, but this stuff was just sitting outside? Was it, like, in somebody's backyard or something? Or... <laughs> 
Uh, no, it was. Uh, it wasn't. It was in. It was behind a warehouse. Is what it was. Um, it like a lot of stuff. It fell through the cracks. It was yeah. It was sitting outside, like literally outside. It was. It was in Long Beach, and uh, it just. It it was during a period where Paramount and Viacom and CBS were all sort of playing musical rights, you know, to stuff, and they were selling yeah. off their props from Christie's, uh, all this stuff. And I, I don't really know that much about that, but uh, I'm sure there were people fired who were pissed off and didn't want to tell other people what was going on and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's how this happened. And when I, I, I don't, I think the people in charge didn't know that this still existed and it had been destroyed. I, I don't know. But, um, you know, I was just, but thank God I was there as, you know, total nerd idiot to say this stuff and not knowing <laughs> what I was going to do with it. But, you know, it was the right thing to do. Because I was thinking of that show that was on either last year or the year before or what have you, when they were selling a bunch of props from the different Star Trek shows and the kind of money they were commanding. And to think that this stuff was just outside behind some garage is just crazy thinking. <laughs> oh, I know, but it, it still happens. It's still, till the day, that kind of stuff still happens. Uh, and it's usually two reasons. It's not because they don't think it's going to be worth money. It's because the owners of the studio say, okay, so we don't want anybody else to use this, and we don't have anything, any place to put it, so let's destroy it. Nice. So Sorry, you- I'll tell you, someone who doesn't think like that, Lucasfilms does not think like that. And Disney well, doesn't think God. like that. Yeah, exactly. So the Hollywood Science Fiction Museum is a registered uh, 501c3 foundation. Mm-hmm. And you not only have a museum complex, but you also do education and uh, you have a learning section, a theater, uh, part of a uh, convention experience as well. Explain- well, let me, yeah, let me uh, separate that a little bit. That whole blueprint and layout and all that, that's for our, you know, that's like five years down the line. Okay. The first museum that we're doing is uh, going to be, if the Kickstarter does well, or at least if we get to a certain point of money, we can open up our 2015 museum, which will be roughly 20,000 square feet. It will be a smaller version of our museum, but it will still have the Star Trek Enterprise bridge from Next Generation, as well as the original series. It will have uh, a couple of ships from uh, Battlestar Galactica. It'll have Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, Firefly, Battlestar Galactica props, uh, and some Farscape props if Henson's company will let us. And, you know, it'll have a bunch of stuff. Plus, of course, Kit Carr from Knight Rider and Back to the Future DeLorean and um, some other, like, known cars like that, the Batmobile. Um, those things, oh, and the, uh, the RoboCop car too, that, that's been offered too. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll fit into it as much as we can. And then that will be our proving ground that will prove to the big investors and the big studios that this works. And as far as education, it's not just, oh, I'm going to walk around here and, oh, I'm going to look at this. Oh, that's, that's a normal museum. That's to me the museum of the past. I want this to be a museum of the future where you can sit in the DeLorean. You can sit in the Batmobile. You can push buttons. You can have kit telling you how the, the thing works and telling you each button. Um, and there's touch screens that you can, and it's a full environment. You know, that, that there's, uh, there are bits and pieces of that you can find in other museums, but there's no one museum that is exactly like that. And it's doable. You know, it, it can be done. I just think, you know, uh, I, I've met a lot of museum people, and the board of directors are usually people in their 80s, you know, at least right. their mentality is. And right. all of these people, <laughs> look, we've got, we've got some board members who are over 50 years old, but they don't think like that. They still think like they're in their 20s. They're still excited by uh, what 
the technology can do and how we can use that to, to make something fun or cool or exciting or inspirational. And, you know, that, that's awesome. So yeah, um, that's, that's what 2015 will do. And then it'll prove to the big companies like Google and Microsoft and all the rest that, Oh my God, this, this is the museum of the future. This is the way this should work. And it's freaking Star Trek. It's Star Wars, you know? <laughs> now you come from a family of filmmakers and people who've been involved in entertainment and the film industry for, uh, for their lives. Your, your yeah, father like, was a, a Disney uh, composer, Floyd Adelston. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, he wrote, everybody wants to be a cat in the Aristocats. And he, he wrote a song called love in Robin hood. And my mom actually sang it in the movie too. Um, and he wrote a lot of songs. And that was up for an Oscar, by the way. That was um, I got some pictures of my mom and dad sitting next to Paul McCartney, and you know this kind of, <laughs> this kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm just watching him this afternoon. <laughs> you know what's funny? That year was like the toughest year of any song thing since 1942, when Casablanca and all these other famous songs came out. Because uh, the year my parents were nominated was "Live and Let Die." Uh, the way we were, I mean, they were all, oh my God. <laughs> you know, they they were all these million selling standards. So it was like, you know, they didn't have a chance. <laughs> so, um, but I'll tell you something really cool. And I, I killed to get this footage. It's, uh, it was, uh, my dad's song on the Oscars was sung by Jody Foster. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jody Foster and Johnny Whitaker uh, from uh, the um, you know Family Affair. Anyway, sidetrack. Yeah, from Sea Monsters. Right. Monsters. Yes, yes. Yes. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I digress. My dad wrote songs for Sinatra and Peggy Lee and Doris Day and Ella Fitzgerald and a lot of people. Um, so I grew up in that world. So um, you know, it just. I think that's a good thing. So when the opportunity came that I was, yeah, it was absolutely crazy to obtain this bridge and not know what the hell I was going to do with it. But um, from there, once the opportunity presented itself to go through with a museum, because that was kind of our only option uh, after a point, because it was that or tour the bridge, which we couldn't do because that would have violated because CBS has their own touring bridge. And uh, we couldn't go Star Trek because we had no rights to do a Star Trek museum. So we're going uh, fair use with the standard museum, and it'll be everything. So uh, I, I think my showbiz savvy and growing up in the business, I wasn't afraid to do that. You know, where I, I, most people, I think, would have just headed for the hill um, because it would have just been too much pressure. And... You know, it's, I haven't become a chain smoker or major drinker, so that, you know, or very <laughs> cocaine off the tables yet. So I mean, you know. So uh, yeah. on, on the head page of your website, you talk about highlighted franchises, mm-hmm. and what what does that actually mean? Highlighted franchises. Um, uh, what do you mean? Uh, I mean. How do they play into the whole aspect of the museum? Because, I mean, you list some incredible franchises. The Star Trek franchise, Firefly, Star Wars, uh, Battlestar Galactica, Stargate, Alien, Doctor Who. Well, we're going with the props that are available to us, uh, number one. Because uh, all all those franchises, I know people who have props from those things. So uh, Uh, at at the very least, we can present them to the world. Um, at the most, what we're trying to do now is to obtain uh, some sort of agreement or license from these particular companies so that they will be involved and they will see the potential that uh, a nonprofit educational museum can help their franchise and can publicize their franchise. And and they'll still make money in the gift shop regardless, I mean, with their franchise. <laughs> so even if they don't give a damn about education, uh, at least, oh, whoa, you know, but that's the cynical side. The, the non-cynical side is 
some big star, you know, Tom Cruise can walk in the museum, point to his kids and say, hey, I did that. That's, that's my movie, you know? I was producer on that. My, something I did that was a movie is turning out to actually inspire people, you know? And on, on a spiritual level, I would think that that would really knock people out. And so far it has. Every star I've met that I've mentioned this to, I, I met uh, uh, Kevin Smith the other day, and I, I didn't have to go past two words explaining to him this thing, and he said, I'm with you. No, don't, you don't have to go any further. This is my thing, you know? Nice. And, yeah, uh, and it's been that way with every one I've met, and all they care about at this point is, okay, who the hell are you? Oh, right, okay. <laughs> and is this going to happen? That's right. <laughs> What's that? As long as you're not a stalker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I Well, again, growing up in the business, I know how not to be a stalker. There you go. Uh, it's just, it's approaching them not like a fan, you know, approaching them on a business level and not, going, <laughs> you know, I mean, believe me, if, if I met some girl I had a crush on from a movie or something, I yeah, I, I, I'm sometimes, I'm a babbling idiot. Uh, but oh, I'm not the only one. <laughs> oh shit! Thank you, man. I am not the only one because uh, I feel like one half the time. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's you know so far so good, and uh, I I just think that once the doors are, are laid open and that people see that this is a real thing that it's going to happen and it's logical, you know why the hell not? You know. So the Kickstarter that you're running right now is basically for seed money. Correct. It's to get the uh, it's to get the finances so that we can hire a staff of people to do nothing but burning up the phones and the emails and creating the uh, materials we need so that when we have these meetings, it will have the perspectives and the financial statements and the comparative studies of different museums, all this ugh, boring, crappy business stuff that bores me to tears, but it, it does. It's, yeah. The fun, cool stuff is the stuff I care about. You know, I mean, once we got that money to do the stuff, that's when we can put, oh, gee, we're going to have the alien room and it's going to look like H.R. Giger and it's going to have the so much, you know, that's, and we can hire, uh, uh, Karen Gillan and Matt Smith and, and David Tennant to come in and talk about the Cybermen and you know that uh, that's like boom boom time you know that how cool is that um, but this other boring stuff needs to get done first <laughs> so where do you envision the, the actual physical museum being at this point there's two spots um, there's a spot that's near Hollywood and Highland and there's a spot that's right near Vine and Sunset. It's on Sunset and near Vine. And oh, the, reason, the reason for those, there's two reasons. A, they're both built-up kind of areas that are safe and you don't have people mugging you in the parking lot. And B, they're both near movie theaters. And the whole point of this is to be studio-friendly. Because uh, we're in the heart of Hollywood anyway. And they can have a big premiere at their movie, at their whatever theater, the Cinerama Dome or the El Capitan or Chinese Theater. And then they'll go across the street or down the street or whatever to our museum and have the after party and see all their props on display from that movie and, you know, kiss their own butts, you know, whatever. But, I mean, as long as you're studio friendly and you play that game with them, it's, it's a win-win. It really is. This is a very. This is a passion project for you. Yeah. No, I'm in it for the lack of money. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of gonna. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want this to be the coolest museum on earth. I really do. I want this to be something that I could go to and have so much fun. And there's not much like that. You know, I'm. I don't know if I'm that jaded, but there there is no museum like this in the world, and I've been to some ones that I've been told are so cool. Uh, yeah, they're cool if you're if you want to be a scientist or an astronaut or an astrophysicist, which I don't. I have no I'm lousy at math. I was crap at science. But why not give people something that if you go that direction, great. But if you want to be a filmmaker, look over here. 
Oh, I just care about this. Oh, look over here. You know, yeah. So over the next couple of years, it's fundraising, working to try and put the physical plant of it together, reaching out to studios, reaching out to franchises to put into this building the things you wanted to see. And then the hard part, or actually the easy part, is finding the people to come in. Oh, that'll be easy. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think so. <laughs> I think from everyone I talked to, they said this is the mecca of all sci-fi, you know. Um, it's like the field of dreams, build it and it'll come. But uh, I, uh, yeah, the thing is, I, I want, uh, if, if we get enough money to start implementing things as quickly as I know that there are companies that have come to me already saying, tell us when you got your stuff together and we can talk about the donation and the branding and the sponsorship and whatever. And I can get a lot of stuff for free. I can't get some of this stuff for free and I can't hire a staff of experts in fundraising for free. But, um, you know, I, I, if things go the way I want them to go, we could open by the end of 2015. Simple as that. Nice. And, uh, you know, it'll still be all those things. It'll be the Enterprise B. It'll be, the you know, all those other props. But for God's sake, they're all sitting in a warehouse. Uh, just with all no over the Los come. Angeles area. Yeah, all over. You know, Universal. Ronald D. Moore on our board of directors said, hey, you know, the my original full-size Viper and Raider just sitting in a warehouse. Just gathering dust, you know. And uh, the, the mule from Firefly. Mm-hmm. It's sitting there, you know, and, the, yeah. you know, and to put these things on display so people can drool over and cry over, you know, uh, the coolest thing in the world to me. I think uh, we would agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got I to gotta say, when I was up in Seattle and I saw the Science Fiction Museum and Hall of Fame up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know you've been up there as well, I've, I believe. Yeah, yeah when, I got pictures of it, too. <laughs> when you walk in the door and there is Klaatu standing there, <laughs> the, the huge robot from the day the Earth stood still, I mean, I just stood there and I was stunned. And, you know, when you look up, you'll see the spinner from, uh, from Blade Runner. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I love that museum and I love those people at that museum and we're trying to we're, we're talking you know we're trying to do something because I love them and they seem to love what we're doing and we do to- two totally different things because they started out as a music museum right? and then they, they sort of morphed into a sci-fi museum because of Paul Allen's just unbelievable taste and you know amount of money to purchase a collection and so now it's kind of an everything museum. I should say everything cool at Paul Allen has collection. <laughs> uh, he's he's got the axe from uh, The Shining. You know, he he's got incredible stuff. He's got the the uh, Buffy's steak. You know, this kind of stuff. Um, and so yeah, I, I, we're trying to do something. I'm I went to visit NASA about. Um, Two months ago, and I I loved those people, and I was intimidated as hell to meet all those people. Uh, speaking of which, when you know the previous guest, I was thinking about this. I was walking out of the parking lot, and this moon buggy drives up, and it was the coolest thing I ever seen. It was gold, and it had it looked like uh, I I can't even explain what it looked like, but it was so awesome looking. And I said, "Oh my god, what is that?" And the guy said. Oh, um, are you staff? Well, no. Oh, you're not supposed to see this. <laughs> and I said, I said, um, okay. And well, can I just take a little picture? Uh, no, you can't. <laughs> oh, I will okay. arrest you if you do. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh man, yeah. Don't, don't, don't hurt me. You know the NASA police will come and beat the crap out of me. No, anyway, it was uh, that was really cool. I wish I'd taken a picture. And he said. You know, it'll be news will be out about it in a few months. I said, okay, all right, but yeah, um, but I would love to in our museum to have real, uh, real uh, space and science, vehicles and toys and robots. 
next to the the ones from the TV shows. And then, you know, Robbie the Robot next to S, uh, Robonaut 2 from, from NASA. Yeah. Uh, you know, and learn how far we've come and how far we haven't come and, you know, what the difference is. And Elon Musk's new dragon thing, to get inside of that and fly a simulated mission to see what it's really going to be like. You know, there's nothing like that. That would be so cool for people who don't give the slightest crap about space or science. Absolutely. It would still be just amazing, you know? Well, Houston, you have your work cut out for you. <laughs> well, it's fun work. I think it's fun work. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show. On the coming up calendar in the coming weeks, on June 14th, Ron Garner and Michael A. Stackpole joined to talk about the new anthology, Heroes. On June 21st, artist Sarah Hensley from Mad Scientist Lab. June 28th, Vlad Voslin, author of The Button. And July 5th, Peter Vinton tells us all about his new secret project of secrecy. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Boston Comic Con, Granite Con, Rhode Island Comic Con, booksandbooze.com, and comicarthouse.com. Visit comicarthouse.com for the best deals in original art from dozens of your favorite artists. Tonight intro provided by Rob Watts. Find him and his music on robwattsonline.com. Tonight's outro provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Check out more of their grooves on lawrencemademecry.com. I want to thank our guests tonight, Derek and Chuck from mysteryaircraft.com and Houston Huddleston from the Hollywood Science Fiction Museum. From the Revere Time Vortex, I want to thank our cast, the sweetheart of the soundboard, Griana and Grandma Girl Zombrian. Thank you so much, ladies. From the Four Color Vault of Comics, great thanks to the dead redhead. This is Dome saying, Genie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Good night, everybody. Spooty, spoot, spoot. Eat, eh, eh, eat, eh, eat. Yes, eat.